We open up God's Word today as we begin a short Advent series entitled, Who is This Jesus? Exploring key seminal passages in the New Testament that reveal to us the reality and the impact of Christmas. Because at the end of the day, we want to answer the question, do all of the lights and all the decorations and all the parties and all the celebrations and services do they actually make a difference? Do they actually mean anything? And I, my prayer is that over the next few weeks, we would be reminded of the reality and the impact of the incarnation and understand the significance, the power, and the influence of Christmas and what happened 2,000 years ago. We find ourselves this morning exploring the issue and the doctrine and the truth, the deity of Jesus Christ. And we look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, as we explore together the reality and the impact of the deity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, and truth. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Who would you say Jesus is? If someone was to ask you that question, how would you respond? Our world is flooded with various responses to that question, that pivotal question concerning who Jesus is. Some in our world might say that they like to think of Jesus as a good person, a a moral exemplar. Some in our society might say that Jesus was a great teacher, someone that 2,000 years continues to enlighten humanity. Some might say that Jesus seems like someone that could easily fit into my life to maybe give me a leg up in life, but I've got the rest of my life to figure that out. But whatever their response might be, our culture, our society is desperate for that question. They want to know who is this Jesus? And would we as the people of God be prepared to give an accurate response I want us to explore this morning, as we look at John chapter 1, 
the reality and the impact of the incarnation, the reality that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came into the world full of grace and full of truth. Does it matter that Jesus is God? If someone was to ask you that question today, what answer would you give? I want to break up this sermon into two parts. I want us to first look at the argument that John proposes in John chapter 1, the argument that Jesus is God, and then look at verse 14 and study the implications. The argument and the implications that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's first study the argument together. I think it's important for us to understand, maybe if you're new to Christianity, new to the scriptures, when John opens up and says the word, the word, the word, that can often be confusing. But John, in verse 14, reveals who he's talking about. That the very word of God in verse 14, we are told, is none other than the Son who comes from the Father. The word that John is talking about is Jesus. And so John is presenting here in the first chapter, which is known as the prologue or the introduction to the rest of the gospel of John, he's speaking of Jesus as the very word of God. And there's many things that John uses to defend the case that Jesus is the son of God, not just a good teacher, not just a moral exemplar, But he argues and makes the case that Jesus is God. And there's a few things that we can see here that defend the case of the deity of Jesus. The first thing right off the bat, in verse 1, John makes it super clear that when we talk about Jesus, he's not a God, but he is God. It says, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wants to make a very definitive case right off the bat that Jesus is God. Not a God, it's not some superhuman, but he is infinite. That he is God himself. But then he continues. Jesus is not only God, but in verses 1 and 2, he makes the case that this God, that Jesus being God, is eternal. If you look at verses 1 and 2, John uses very important language in the beginning. Any student of Scripture should be familiar with that phrase, in the beginning. Where else in the Bible do we see the phrase, in the beginning? Well, we see it in the beginning. If you open up Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation, the Bible opens up at creation with these very words. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is taking us back to creation. One story from beginning to end. And just as God was in the beginning, that there was no beginning or end to God, John wants to make it very clear that it was not only God the Father that has no beginning and no end, but that Jesus himself is eternal in the beginning. This idea, this word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God can actually be translated was continuing or continually God. One commentator, Kent Hughes, said, Jesus always was wasing. Wrap your mind around that. 
that there was no beginning and no end to Jesus. He is eternal. But John argues further, not only is Jesus God and not only is Jesus the eternal God, but in verse 3, he reveals that Jesus also is the creator. It says in verse 3 that all things were made through him. Often many Christians think of creation being responsible only from God the Father, that somehow maybe Jesus was an innocent bystander. But John is revealing to us that all three persons of the Trinity were active, active participants and responsible for creation. So the billions of stars that are located in the millions of galaxies have all been created by the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that Jesus is responsible for creation. And this is consistent with the other New Testament writers. In Colossians 1, we read, For by him all things were created, speaking of Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. John makes the argument, Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal God. Jesus is the eternal God who have created the heavens and the earth. The fourth thing that he argues is that eternal creator God is also the source of light and life. In verses 4 And in verses 5 and in verse 9, we are told that Jesus is the source of light and life. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, where does life come from? You need light in order to have life. In the first century, in a Roman pagan culture, they worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. But it wasn't something unique to Rome. Any pagan culture that rejected the Judeo-Christian worldview all worshipped the objects in the sky. So what John is saying here is phenomenal. The ultimate source of light and life are not the objects in the sky, but the ultimate source of light and life is the sun of heaven. Don't worship the sun, the moon, and the stars, but worship the one who put the sun, the moon, and the stars into the sky and into the heavens. This is phenomenal truth that Jesus himself is the ultimate source of light and life, both spiritually and physically. Physically, that he is the one that hung the moon and hung the stars and hung the, 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 the stars in the skies and in the heavens above. That he is the ultimate source of light in the midst of the darkness, but he's also the source of light and life spiritually. That not only is it dark out there, but John wants us to be reminded that it's dark in here. That Jesus shines the light of life into the darkness of our souls and brings about new creation. He is the source of light and life, both physically and spiritually. Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal God. Jesus is the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth, who is the ultimate source of life and light. But what does it matter? 
John makes the argument. He makes the case. But what difference does it make? Secondly, the implications of the deity of Christ. I want to present two. There are a plethora of implications to the deity of Christ, but two that we see here specifically in chapter 1 and specifically verse 14. The first implication is this. If Jesus is the Son of God, it means that God has become visible. In verse 14, it says, The Word has become flesh. The second part of this verse, we have seen his glory. Why is this significant? All throughout redemptive history, humanity has cried out, we want to see God. We want to see the invisible. Even Moses on Mount Sinai cries out to see the God that is invisible, to see the glory of God. Moses quickly understands, be careful what you ask for. Because when the glory of God is revealed to Moses, even Moses, he has to hide in the cleft of the rock because the glory of God, when it is made visible, is too strong and too overwhelming. But what we read here in John chapter 1 is the miracle of miracles. Finally, God can be seen that the invisible has become visible, that the unseen can be seen, that the word has become flesh, and that word is God himself, that the God that has been hidden can now be seen. It's interesting, you often hear people say things, particularly skeptics of Christianity, they'll say things like, I would believe in Christianity if only it was a little more concrete. I would believe in Christianity if it was a little more logical. Do you know what the word word means here in John 1? It's the Greek word is logos. It's where we get the word logic from. Isn't that phenomenal in the infinite wisdom of God? God to a skeptical world, craving for something concrete, something logical. God says, here you go. My son will come down. He brings us in the flesh the word of God, something tangible, something in the flesh for those that are craving something concrete in Jesus, the miracle of the incarnation. We can see it, John tells us later in his epistle. We've seen it, and we've touched it, and we've heard it. God has been made visible. The word has become flesh so that Jesus can say, when you follow me, there will be no more darkness at all. But the second implication is this. Not only does the deity of Christ mean that God has become visible, but secondly, it means that God has taken our place. Right there in the middle of verse 14, three powerful words. He has dwelt among us. The word dwelt there in verse 14 literally means tabernacle. You say, Pastor Rob, what does it mean for Jesus to tabernacle with us? Well, in the Old Testament, we're told that the humanity's greatest dilemma is sin. And because of sin, we have been separated from a holy God. But God has created the tabernacle in the Old Testament 
the place where man could meet with God, where man could dwell with God, and it would be in the tabernacle where the high priest would come and make atonement and make sacrifice for the people of God so that they could be reconciled to God. And what John is telling us is that Jesus has come as the ultimate tabernacle. Jesus has come as the ultimate atonement. That Jesus has come as both tabernacle, priest, and sacrifice, reconciling humanity to God, the God that we are estranged from, the God that we long to have access to, in Jesus alone, allows us to dwell with God forever. The great implication and miracle of Christmas and the deity of Jesus Christ is that through his life and death and resurrection, through his sacrificial atonement for us, we can forever dwell with God. The miracle of Christmas is that God has come down into the darkness of this world and into the darkness of our lives and allows us to forever have access to God. This is the miracle and the good news of Christmas. Two closing words of application for you this morning. I first want to speak to the skeptic or to the non-Christian. If it is true that Jesus Christ is God, you can no longer say, that I don't believe that he's God, but I simply accept him as a good teacher or moral exemplar. C.S. Lewis said it himself, a man, who is me- a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would never be a great moral teacher. C.S. Lewis went on to say, if he is not truly the son of God, he is either a liar or a lunatic. You see, would Jesus... If he was simply a great moral teacher or a great moral exemplar, would never have said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He would have never said things like, I and the Father are one. So if you're here today and you're wrestling with the truth claims of Christianity or wrestling with the truth claims of Christmas, You can either fully accept him for who he says he is, the true son of God, or fully reject him. But don't dare just call him a good moral teacher or a moral exemplar. Jesus has taken that off the table for us. Also, another word to the skeptic or the non-Christian. Christmas also doesn't allow you to say that I don't have what it takes to follow Jesus. This passage tells us in verse 12 that God, not you, earned the right to be called a child of God. That God, not you, have accomplished what you could never accomplish. You see, it says here in verse 12, God gives us the right to be called children of God. Meaning you can't do anything to earn it, that you can't work for it, it's not about who you were, who you were born to. It that's not the not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor even the will of man. But if you are a Christian, it is because of the will of God. It is because of His unmerited grace alone. So if you're here today and you say I don't have what it takes, you are well on your way to becoming a child of God. Because the testimony of every Christian is this: I don't have what it takes, but I know the One who does. It says that many didn't receive him. Don't be counted in that group this Advent. 
that does not receive Jesus Christ. Last word of application is to the church. If Jesus is God, it means that he's also Lord. Now everyone here would say, yes and amen, Jesus is God and he is Lord. But the question is, have you yielded to him? Your money and your finances, your marriage and your family, your career, your desires and your goals, if it is true that Jesus is God, it means that he's also Lord. 80% of all Americans say that the number one goal of life is to pursue their happiness and their pleasure. Meaning that the goal of life is that for my name to be hallowed and my kingdom to come and my will to be done. How many in the North American church would say the same thing? If Jesus is God, it means that he is also Lord. Jesus when he came into the world 2,000 years ago, came into a world and a culture that was full of idols and false gods. Christianity was outlawed and Roman, Roman paganism was rampant. And every December 25th in the Roman Empire was dedicated as a feast day to the God of the sun And they would feast and they would celebrate the false god of the sun until something happened. Eventually, Christianity was legalized. The Roman Empire crumbled. And instead of December 25th being dedicated to the false god of the sun, it was dedicated to the birth of the greatest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ. When Christianity became the message and the movement of the day, the whole world was receiving this message that in Christ we no longer have to worship the sun in the sky, but we can worship the true sun, the son of heaven who has come down in the flesh to turn this world upside down. Listen. Christianity did not turn this world upside down because Jesus came as a great moral teacher. Christianity did not turn this world upside down because he came as a great moral exemplar. The reason Christianity turned this world upside down is because Jesus came as the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man. And the last thing our culture needs today is another great moral exemplar. The last thing our culture needs today is just another good teacher. The last thing our world needs today is another spiritual guru promising our best life now. The one thing our world needs now is what the world needed 2,000 years ago. They need Jesus the Christ, who is the Son of God. That is the only hope that we can offer this lost and dying world. Anything short of the deity of Christ is all vanity. All vanity. Our culture needs to know that Jesus Christ came as the full Son of God. And because he's God, he is Lord. And he has come not to be served, but to serve. This is what our society needs now more than ever. And just as the deity of Christ confronted the false gods and the idols of his day, 
It will be the deity of Christ that continues to confront the false idols and the false gods of our day. The reality and the impact of what happened at that first Christmas is what this world needs. It's the only hope for a lost and dying world because one day, one day, every knee will bow and one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news. Not only the facts and the argument, but the good news that Jesus is the Son of God. If he's not the Son of God, there is no tabernacle. If he is not the Son of God, there is no perfect atonement. If he's not the Son of God, there is no perfect sacrifice. But we know the truth, and the truth has set us free. May we never doubt, Lord, the power of reality and the impact of Jesus coming into the world, God in the flesh, transforming this world, but also transforming hearts. And if there's anyone here or watching at home that wrestles with the truth claims of Christianity, skeptical about the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, Lord, I pray that they would no longer doubt but instead receive and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come in the flesh to take our place, to reveal the good news of God that in Jesus we can be given the right from God to be called children, children of the one, the only one that truly matters the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who has created us in his image, gives us the right through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to become his child. So may the testimony of this day, may the testimony of this Advent, that many in our midst would receive Jesus and be given the right to be called a child of God, not according to their will, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but according to the will and the goodness of God. And for those that do know Christ, may this be the message that we declare to this region and to this world that God has come down, Emmanuel, to be with us, and he offers himself freely to whoever would receive him and believe on his name. This is the hope, the reason for this season. May it be the good news that is proclaimed by this church, the good news that is proclaimed by everyone here, the family of God going out into the world declaring that the light has entered the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. May that be our prayer this Advent. In Jesus' name, amen.